It's Wednesday, August 27th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. I normally don't bore you with tales of my commute. Delight you, delight you with tales of... Bore light. I don't bore light you with tales of my commute. But an interesting train experience today. It dealt in the audio. Here's what happened. So, take the train to Union Square. I'm going to take a one more stop to Astor Place. The train leaves Union Square. Then the announcement comes on as it's leaving. So I have no other choice in the matter. And they say, uh, let me quote this exactly from memory. The announcement says, What? What the hell did that just say? What? We all turn to each other. I think they're saying they're bypassing Astor Place for Bleecker. Not the biggest nightmare in the world. Let's see what happens. Indeed, we go past Astor Place. There we are on Bleecker. And we stop. And the doors are closed. And we're stopped. And the doors are still closed. And we're wondering what the hell is going on. And then the voice comes on and she says, What? What did she say? I think we're going to the Brooklyn Bridge next. Why don't they just open the doors? No, no, no. I think they said, I think I heard her say Vanderbeek Batman. What? James Vanderbeek's going to be the next Batman? No, that's how rumors get started. She said that we're going to Brooklyn Bridge next. All right, fine. Can we just all get out? No, we can't get out. They're not opening the doors. What would be their margin in not opening the doors? So we wait and we wait and we get no explanations. And then all of a sudden the voice comes on and it says, Halifax will end anxiety to Kubla County Stanley Pleasure Dome degree walk up on the video. What? What was she saying? I think she was quoting Samuel Taylor Coleridge. No, I think it's pronounced Coleridge. Shut up! I just want them to open the doors. I don't understand what's going on. We need another announcement. But we get no other announcement. So we stay, and then a rumor spreads throughout the train. No, it's not that Vanderbeek would be playing Batman. The rumor that there was a door open in one of the cars that you could get out of. So slowly, everyone in the train begins trekking northward. And then we hear this. What? I have no idea what she's saying again. But finally, it's true. There is one slightly ajar door. So we all exit this. And on the way out, I see the conductor. I see the very conductor who's been making the announcement. And I said to her, listen, I understand you have a hard job, but why can't you just open the doors? Does it have something to do with another train? And she looked at me right in the eye. And without apology and with just what I would describe as a defiance, she said something that hours later still resonates. She said, Today on the show, we'll be discussing a graphic novel that is both graphic, sexually, and novel, inventive. And in the spiel, I'll be talking about a conservative tendency to seek out a counterexample whenever prominent instances of racial injustice are reported. But first, the Latino vote. Do Republicans care? Republicans, like all marketers, want to reach Hispanics. Or do they? Marco Rubio, once seen as the new face of GOP appeal to Hispanics, turned his back on the DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival program. And just this week in South Carolina, he upbraided some pro-DREAM Act protesters who heckled him. Republicans have done nothing to advance immigration reform, and they've even punished some legislators, think Eric Cantor, who dared dip a toe in these waters. In states with contested Senate elections in 2014, only Colorado has enough Latino voters to swing an election. But what about 2016? 
Joining me now is Victoria M. DeFrancesco Soto, who is a fellow at the Center for Politics and Governance at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas. Hello, Vicki. Hello. The Republican outreach efforts this time around, is it any different than it's been for the past few election cycles, in your opinion? Mike, it's similar to the outreach efforts of the past midterm elections, because I think we need to differentiate between outreach efforts and the general presidential elections and the midterm elections. I think in the midterm elections, you see the GOP shying away from that big tent, let's reach out to Latino strategy, and hunkering down on the base. And what that means sometimes, regrettably, is putting forward policies that can be deemed anti-immigrant, anti-Latino. When the whole country is at play and we've got our presidential elections, that's when you see the renewed effort toward courting the Latino vote. Well, isn't this inevitably going to be perceived as cynical by the very voters you want to court, maybe not in three months, but in two years and three months? It's cynical, and I would say on the part of the GOP, it's short-sighted. And not all Republicans favor this short-sighted strategy. You are seeing a push among the likes of, say, a Jeb Bush of saying, we just need to change our tone and our strategy. Maybe we're not going to advocate for full-on comprehensive immigration reform like the Democrats are, but we can offer some solutions. And, hey, the first step would be let's stop insulting these people. Let's stop using derogatory names to refer to immigrants. Like illegal aliens. Yes. Yeah. And worse. And worse. So... You know, a few weeks ago, maybe a week and a half ago, I was speaking to a uh, conservative thinker, and we were talking about GOP efforts to increase the black vote. And, you know, I'm of the opinion that, you know, the majority of black people are not going to vote for Republican any time in my lifetime. But there's a logical case to be made that much greater numbers of black people should vote Republican. It's 2 or 4%. You can make the case that it should be 8 or 12% just based on what the opinions of black voters are. I don't know if I can make that case with Latinos. It seems to me that Latinos very much care about immigration issues. The vast majority of them are on one side of the issue, though there are some exceptions and by By the way, Marco Rubio seems to be among a group of Latinos that is in the exceptional category. But since the majority of Latinos care about this issue, and since the GOP is on the other side of the issue, is it really true that more Latinos should be voting Republican? How do you even make that case? Immigration is a gateway issue. Until the issue of immigration is taken off the table, the GOP is not going to be able to reach out to Latinos. And what's so frustrating to the GOP folks who want to reach out to Latinos is that they know it can be done. Think about the George W. Bush days. In 2004, George W. Bush got over 40% of the Latino vote. When he ran for his re-election campaign and governor here in Texas, he got almost 50% of the Latino vote because he had a very comprehensive notion of immigration. You know, and the other thing that we see is that Latinos, in fact, have very similar views to a lot of conservative folks. Not all Latinos, but we do tend to see more social conservatives in the Latino population. But until the issue of immigration is resolved, they're not going to listen to the next thing the GOP has to say if they're bashing immigration and not wanting to budge on any reform. Let's imagine a future where this issue is taken off the table. What are the issues after that where Republicans would have natural inroads with Latinos? Issues we've seen in the past, uh, abortion, we see especially among 
immigrants and recent immigrants, say first or second generation, they tend to be more socially conservative. Also financially, we see among Latinos, some of them are small business owners. We know that among immigrants, we have the highest rates of entrepreneurialism. They side on the GOP front when it comes to taxes. So I think there's the issue portion of it, but then there's also the outreach question of the GOP, where they also need to open up the door and say, hey, we want you here. They can have all the greatest issues, and immigration can be off the table, but they also need to invite Latinos to come in. Okay, let's say somehow the GOP is able to execute its pivot. They win the midterm. What should the Democrats then do to say we're still the better party for Latino voters? What should they do in terms of a positive agenda? It would be highlighting, I think, economic policy. Because what we saw with the Great Recession was that the group that was hardest hit, everyone was hard hit, but Latinos were the hardest hit by the recession, losing 66% of their wealth. Among Latinas, highlight contraception coverage. Obviously, there's a segment of the population that is anti-abortion, that is anti-contraception, but there's another whole chunk that is very much for women's contraception rights. So I think it's going to those issues that they don't even touch because so much attention is spent on immigration. Victoria DeFrancesco Soto is a fellow at the Center for Politics and Governance at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Mike. Lena Finkel's Magic Barrel is a graphic novel by Anya Ulinich. It concerns her search for love, sex, all as the classic stranger in a strange land, having emigrated from Russia when she was 18 years old. Yeah. Can I just stop you from referring to this character as me? Oh, okay. You can't call her you because yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. Though Anya Ulinich requested this repeatedly throughout the interview, I'm going to make this mistake again and again. It's easy to do. The book is a graphic novel, and Anya looks similar to her character, almost identical, and some of the biographical details are also similar, as we'll discover. Anya Ulinich joins me now. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Though cliched as this question is, why did you want to do this in the form of a graphic novel? Because you've written novel novels, like Petropolis, your last novel. So why uh, why do you want to pair it with the visual? Well, I've always studied to be an artist ever since I was a kid, and, uh, and I have an MFA in painting, for what it's worth. So when I came to New York, I actually, I had a small child, and I, after graduate school, I stopped painting just for space-constrained reasons, and I ended up writing a novel, a traditional novel, and it gave me this identity as a writer. I didn't draw anything or do any artwork for about 10 years. And then I rediscovered drawing quite accidentally through like a freelance job. Someone mm -hmm. needed an illustrator. And I real realized that I could still draw, A, and B, when I had a hard time writing. I wrote a second novel after Petropolis, and it, was, it wasn't very good. It's My, mentioned here. Is the novel you describe in this book? No. What? No. This book is fiction, and uh, the novel I wrote was different than the novel my protagonist is writing in the book. Right. But it was not a great piece of writing. I mean, I 
work through it. You know, yeah. I submitted it to my agent. We both decided it was kind of eh. Right. And, and that's then, depicted in the book. But was the novel you wrote, so in, in uh, Lena Finkel's Magic Barrel, the problem with the novel that the character is writing is that it's uh, something she doesn't really know about. She's something she doesn't really care about. Yeah. More and was than that the case with your about. second novel? Yeah, it was like I was teaching myself to write a book mm -hmm. because my first novel came out of like a lifetime of experiences and this really urgent political sense of sort of telling it like it is about immigrant identity and the second one lacked that same drive behind it so it was not very great and then I was sort of stumped well what's next and I was doing these little drawings that's just these characters and then I realized that it really helped my writing because when you do a handwritten book with the characters have to communicate via the speech bubbles. Mm -hmm. they, there is this space constraint issue where it's a lot like tweets or Facebook status updates or poetry. You really have to say what you mean in a very small space. And it, my writing tends to sprawl. I never know how to plot my books quite. You know, it's always a whole lot of torture. I was faced with the choice. Either say what you have to say or you have to redraw the page. Faced with that choice, it really kind of gave uh, my writing a kick in the butt. It just felt like a kind of, I found my voice with this drawing. So in the book, the main character, Lena Finkel, goes on a number of dates using OkCupid. And she has these thoughts about online dating, about how it sort of condenses what we think of as normal dating or normal courtship. Even if her courtships haven't necessarily been normal. But, you know, it has this uh, effect of, like, one date is sort of like three dates in the non-internet right. world, right? And the relationships are just hyper and uh, faster than she thought they would be. Uh, definitely, that's the big difference, to my mind, between internet dating. You can say that internet dating is just a mechanism for meeting people. You meet the person, and yeah. there you go. It's the same as meeting them somewhere else. But it's not, because you come to it with an expectation of a romantic connection. So it's different from, say, meeting someone at a party. You don't even know if they already have a girlfriend or what. You just start talking. And even if you're not necessarily immediately like attracted to someone, they can be funny or smart or something, and you start building a friendship, and then it can turn into something. Whereas in this situation, you basically have 20 minutes, and you're sort of expected. It's an internal expectation, but I think it's a systemic one, too, to make that final call. Do I like this guy or do I not like this guy? And also because of the this is definitely a date. It's not like two people casually met and they can just talk about, like, art. You do want to f find out all this personal information. It gets volunteered right away. Like, you know, were you ever married? Uh, what happened? And so then everything gets fast-tracked in this way. But fast-tracked doesn't mean the results are better because what happens is you do also discount people faster. And you don't give people a chance just based on some maybe... I don't know. I mean, I kind of believe in initial attraction, but it's a definitely like a sped up way of getting to know people. Yeah. And you don't really get to know people. Do you think it's better or worse if the end game is to, you know, find someone to have a meaningful relationship with? I couldn't really meet men without some online interface in my life because I moved to New York as a 26-year-old mother of a two-year-old child. And at first I was a stay-at-home mom. I was working on my first novel. My husband was going off to work. So I was going to the playground a lot. So yeah. I met kind of my friends who were other mothers and fathers of two-year-olds. Okay, well, in New York, these people were 42, not 26. So 
my best closest friends, people I would rather spend time with, are by and large 15 years older than me. It's just a demographic thing, right? So then I don't really meet guys who are of my age group, unmarried or just casually. I don't go to work. I work at home. I'm not in an office. It's like impossible for me. So for me, it's like there are drawbacks to it, but in a way there is no choice. Right. Do you have any idea of if any of the uh, guys that you dated and that you depicted in the book, if did you show any of this to them before it was published? Or you have any idea if any of them have uh, seen it? No, I don't. Yeah. They're not very closely depicted. In other words, I'm probably under... If this book were a memoir, it would probably sell better. But I'm going to say that the characters in this book are, are, you know, triggered by experiences, but they're not... Like, I'd never dated a Don Draper lookalike. <laughs> so the details aren't really these people's details. They're based on sort of this particular types of people I had dated. Right. So, now, that was probably true with Petropolis also, right? Yes. Yeah. Did any of those actual people get it wrong or think that it was overly identified as them? It's actually common. I just read a New York Times op-ed about it uh, that mentioned this. Like my mother, yeah. no matter when I could write a mother character, and the mother character could be living like in Alaska and raising goats, and my mother would identify with that mother just because it's a mother and I'm the writer. So, yeah, my mother always identifies with the mother. I got it. Yeah. That makes sense. And I've also read where writers say, all right, now this one time I did someone who was so closely based on my dad and he had all these details and I was pretty sure my dad was going to be upset. It's like, oh, yeah, my dad was like, oh, yeah, that wasn't me. <laughs> and the author was like, I meant it to be you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious about some people in this book that some characters are based on. I'm, I'm curious about whether they've read and what they think, but I leave it up to them. To tell me, you know. But the other thing I noticed, and this is just an observation in the book, is there's no actual positive male interaction. The men in this book are all either mysteries or conundrums or problems or regrets. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't see any actual, which is not a criticism. This is probably, you know, just accurate for how your character is moving through the world. But, you know, men represent at, at best a question mark. Yes. Well, there is no happy ending. That's true. If you write about happy people getting along and falling in love, it makes for a pretty boring story, <laughs> you know? Right. So, yeah, there's the, definitely about conflict and about working this, all these things out. Do you want to keep writing graphic novels? Do you think you'll return to just written work? What do, what do you think is going to happen? I don't know. Then? You know, I am doing both. And uh, for me, writing is absolute torture. <laughs> it's terrible. It's like anxiety, and and I'm a really slow writer. So it's not really actually the best way to make a living for me. <laughs> so you know, I'm teaching, and then also I uh, I'm trying to become a city bureaucrat. I just went for a civil service exam. So really? hopefully, yeah, I just want a job, and yeah. then I can divorce my artistic practice from mm. my attempts to survive, and I would prefer it that way. Anya Yulinich is the author of Lena Finkel's Magic Barrel. Thanks so much for coming. Thank in. you so much for having me. And now the spiel. An unarmed young man is shot and killed by a police officer. His family mourns. Protesters register their complaints. The police circle the wagons. I'm not describing the fate that befell Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Instead, this set of circumstances applies to Dylan Taylor, a 20-year-old killed outside a 7-Eleven by a Salt Lake City police officer. 
It is not that difficult to find stories of suspects, armed and unarmed, shot and killed by police. But why Dylan Taylor's story reverberates beyond Utah, at least to some degree, is that conservatives are pointing to it as an indictment of the media. Taylor, you see, was white, whereas the policeman who killed him is described officially as non-white. In an article originally printed in the Washington Times that ran on the Fox News website under the headline, Ferguson-like attack in Utah escapes media notice, race bias scene, Valerie Richardson writes, Critics say there's a reason for the discrepancy in media coverage, race. The perceived double standard is fueling resentment and talk of double standards on conservative talk radio and social media. Well, that part's true. Many right-wing media watchdog sites say the liberal media are not talking about Dylan Taylor because the media don't care when white people are killed by black people. Rush Limbaugh explained the Dylan Taylor case by saying, I don't know what the word is. Agenda? There's a mindset out there. And the way it works in situations like this, only people of color can be victims. A white person can never be the victim. It just can't happen. In the liberal worldview, every majority is an oppressor. The minority is always the victims, and victims are with whom we should always sympathize no matter what. Well, I'd argue that the reason the Dylan Taylor story wasn't a big national story is the same as why almost none of the hundreds of shootings of whites and blacks by cops become huge national stories. Because they don't engender protests, because the community beyond grieving families hardly notices, the media didn't start the protests in Ferguson. For a couple of days, the protesters were upset that there was a lack of media coverage. And you've heard the statistics from Ferguson, right? Well, you haven't heard them on Russia's show, but maybe elsewhere you've heard that 67% of the town is black, but 50 of 52 police officers are white. 92% of vehicle searches in Ferguson were of black people, 22 of which turned up contraband, though 34% of white people and their vehicles contain contraband. That's verified empirical evidence of a systemic problem. Michael Brown tragically embodied a documentable problem of a minority community being over-policed. The poor kid in Utah who was shot did not represent some big Utah problem of white people being oppressed by black policemen. Maybe he did represent a problem, cops who kill too quickly, the evidence isn't in, but Rush Limbaugh doesn't want to talk about that. Unless Dylan Taylor is an example of Rush Limbaugh's the media discriminates against white people agenda, I do know what the word is, Rush doesn't want to talk about Dylan Taylor. And this isn't new. This is what some corners of conservatism do. WorldNet Daily, the media research center, most of talk radio. Find an example that's similar to a case in the news and then reverse the races. Point out that it's getting little coverage and use that claim to demonstrate that black people being killed by overaggressive cops or weaknesses in the standard ground gun law must be an inaccurate construct. Call this technique finding the negative because it's trying to negate legitimate points, but also think of a photo negative where white becomes black and black becomes white. In this way, Dylan Taylor becomes Michael Ferguson's negative. Back during the Trayvon Martin case, there wasn't an easy negative to latch on to, I think because there wasn't a black man who gunned down an unarmed white man using the stand your ground definition of self-defense, but also because that might undermine stand your ground and conservatives don't want to do that. So what some outlets did was emphasize the waves of attacks against white people in general. Waves. That's right. WorldNet Daily. 
quote, in a wave of black-on-white crime since the February Trayvon Martin slaying, reports are emerging in dozens of brutal assaults by black mobs and assailants against white victims. A favorite in conservative media, Colin Flaherty, blurred by Neil Bortz and Sean Hannity, has a book called White Girl Bleed a Lot, which documents, quote, the return of racial violence to America and how the media ignore it. In a video on his site, Flaherty talks about mob violence. And next you'll hear a white person ID'd only as Chris. I know what that guy said. This is for Trayvon Martin because he was right in my face when he, and after he said it, he punched me right in the mouth. Chris who? What were the circumstances of this punch? I couldn't find out. Yes, of course there were demonstrations after the Trayvon Martin verdict and some turned ugly. I actually saw these reports on TV. The negative, this idea of the negative, it's not always race-based either. It was at its most insidious, perhaps in the late 90s, when the tragic and horrific case of Jesse Durkheising was adopted by some conservative media as a rebuke for the story of Matthew Shepard, the gay man who was tied to a fence and left to die in Wyoming. Media critic Brent Bozell claimed the media, quote, waved the flag of the Shepard beating on its national wire for everyone to see, but didn't report that a 13-year-old boy, Jesse Durkheising, was raped and murdered by gay men. So if you're going to report on a gay victim, said Bozell, it's simply hypocritical not to report on gay perpetrators. Huh? That argument can make sense only to a bigot, a person who thinks the issue is something like gay people, sympathetic or evil. There are grisly rapes and murders all the time. Most of the victims are women. Very few of them become national news stories. Bozell's explanation is absurd. He wrote... No liberal media outlet would dare be the first to tell a grisly murder story which has as its villains two gay men. Right, because John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer, men who killed and sexually assaulted men and boys, no one ever covered those stories, right? Maybe if those two cases are too far removed from when Bozell was writing in 1999, what about Andrew Cunanan? He killed Giovanni Versace. There was a huge manhunt. There was huge coverage of him. That was only two years before Brent Bozell was writing about Jesse Durkheising, before the New York Post and Fox News said that story was being suppressed by liberalism. The negative, as a piece of propaganda, actually hasn't proved especially effective in changing narratives. The comparisons have proved so weak that fair-minded observers dismiss them. Maybe Rush Limbaugh would say they never reach the consciousness of fair-minded observers because of a media blackout. Mm -hmm. But the negative does serve the media purpose of providing something to latch onto for the audience who can't bear to countenance the idea that maybe there is a problem of institutional racism. The negative is an overly black-and-white way to order a nuanced problem. But maybe by exposing the negative, we could see it for what it is. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces Slate Podcast. Also, dramaturg, phlebotomy, sacrosanct, Kew Gardens. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcast. In addition, you can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. Also, we're on Yo. Get the app. Subscribe to Podcast. That's us. We're Podcast. And then when we're ready to go, we'll yo. 
Similarly, there's slate.com slash just email. And if you go there, you can subscribe to our email, which hits your inbox as soon as the show is ready. And you can play the show right from that email. That's slate.com slash just email. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash slate gist. Our Twitter feed is slate gist. Email us at the gist at slate.com. The gist from our family to your family. We say, Turk Club, most of the two of the following basement, and a heartfelt, <laughs>